Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by George Hubbard, the founder and principal of Algonquin Advisors and T21, a firm that focuses on individual trustees. Welcome aboard, George. Thank you, Fraser. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about Algonquin Advisors. What is it that you do and what do you focus on with them? Well, I founded Algonquin 22 plus years ago, and broadly speaking, we're in the wealth management space, but really we are something a little bit different than your typical wealth manager. We are an outsourced chief investment officer or OCIO, and with a twist. The twist is that most OCIOs have a client base or cater to the institutional investor, typically foundations, endowments. In our case, we cater or have a client base that is individuals and families, and sometimes those families have foundations, but we're bringing the institutional process and solutions, if you will, to the individual investor. Very interesting. We talk about a lot of different types of investment advisors, and one of the real bromides is that, oh, we bring institutional thinking to individuals. But in your experience, what are the major differences between institutional investment thinking and what's called individual or family investment thinking? Well, first and foremost, it's got to be taxes. Institutional investors like endowments and foundations, they just don't have to worry about taxes with any of their investment decisions. On the other hand, individuals have that concern. And while we don't want the tax tail to wag the portfolio decision dog, it still is a key element in the difference in thinking between the two. But if we get beyond that and we think about really just the investment process that each goes through, I think institutional investors do a really good job of thinking about time horizons. What's the money being used for? How much time do I have before I have to spend it on whatever liability I have? They're really proficient at that. They also think about their liquidity concerns. They do invest a lot in private market investments or PMIs as we call them. And those lock up your funds for certain periods of time, anywhere from say three months to 10 plus years. So thinking about the liquidity of their investments and setting that up against the liabilities that they have, really important and well done on the institutional side. What else do they think about? They think about risk and return in ways that help them set up their portfolio. The risk and return of the individual securities or the individual holdings that they have. And that informs the total portfolio risk and return. And they do a very good job of thinking through that Last but not least, I would say that they think through position sizing very effectively. Institutional investors have to make sure that the position size they put on, whether it's in an individual portfolio or security or the size of an investment in a venture capital fund, all has to be in concert with an asset allocation plan that they have. They do a fine job at that. So in my mind, what it comes down to, the big difference being institutional investors have done a good job of taking as much emotion out of the investment process as they can. As we all know, and I think individual investors sometimes don't have that acumen and they do react emotionally. 
Something in my experience that's been a difference is that institutional investors have seen the value and the power of alternative asset classes and and have access to that space in a much larger way than the typical individual investor. How do you think about alternatives and their functions within the portfolios you oversee? Maybe the first thing we should do is have a quick definition of alternative assets. In my mind, I kind of go through an iterative process. First, an alternative asset is not exchange traded in any way. It's an illiquid asset as a result. Doesn't mean you can't trade it in the secondary market or have a secondary transaction, but it's not traded daily on an exchange. That's number one. Number two, the alternative asset must have the ability or the intention for capital appreciation and or the generation of a revenue stream. So if your asset doesn't really have that characteristic, then I wouldn't call it an alternative asset. I might give a kind of silly example on that, but if you've got a nice art collection in your home, one, it's not traded, so it could be an alternative asset, but two, it does have the potential for capital appreciation. So I would say your art collection is an alternative asset or investment. On the other hand, if you're a clothes horse and you spend just as much money on your clothes closet, it's not marketable, doesn't trade on the exchange, so it passes that test. But two, I don't think it has capital appreciation potential or is going to generate a revenue stream for you. So in my mind, it's not an alternative asset. So it's a simple example, but if you can pass those two tests, then in my mind, that is an an alternative investment. Though I was going to say, the way I dress, the close example is probably an example of a depreciated asset. So looking at tax loss harvesting or something like that there. (laughs) If you only could, if we only could, that would be great. So your real question though was, how do I think of alternatives and, and why do institutional investors gravitate to them probably more so than individual investors do? I guess there are a couple of reasons, really. One thing I didn't mention, and I did want to talk about hedge funds real quickly and further define alternative assets. The primary alternative assets are private equity, which includes venture capital, private debt or credit, obviously private real estate, natural resources, and hedge funds. Those are the the 95% of the alternative assets that are invested in out there in the world. On hedge funds, one has to really think about those and what they are. Really, they just have two components to them. One, it's a partnership that allows for leverage, and two, it's a partnership that allows for shorting of security or the asset. To me, that's really the definition of a hedge fund. You get paid for the liquidity of the hedge fund and the manager's skill in doing so, in creating alpha for you. So that's ideally how a hedge fund generates return for you. In a sense, it provides a revenue stream, either through capital appreciation or through income, that is different than the public markets. Therefore, it creates diversification almost by definition. And if you can get diversification with a return stream that may or may not be correlated, probably isn't to the best case, then you've got a hedge fund that's really doing its job. And so all alternatives are really trying to do that, provide diversification to the investor and to provide a return stream, whether it's capital appreciation or income, to be able to obviously help achieve the investment goals that the investor has. So wanted to just cover that off. I think that's a pretty good review of why institutional investors really love alternatives. 
We talked a little bit about time horizons and liquidity needs and understanding return expectations, et cetera. It seems like there's a lot of real intelligence around the processes that institutional investors use. And some of that doesn't translate as quickly or as easily to the individual or family investor. In your experience, what do you borrow from the institutional processes that help individuals make fewer mistakes or take advantage of some of the real benefits of institutional thinking? There's so much there that we can talk about. So let's try and hit the high points. Number one, institutional investors always have an investment policy statement. And this is something that's finally come into the fore for individual investors. Everybody has some form of investment policy statement unless they're kind of a do-it-yourself investor. But the key is sticking to it, not letting emotions get in the way and believing that this is the blueprint. This is the path forward for you with your program. If it's not, if it doesn't fit you, then you got to change it. But for example, during the pandemic, during the pandemic sell-off, our investors did very well during it only because they stuck to the investment policy statement and the asset allocation that was embedded in it. Uh, the target asset allocation. So staying with it allowed them to, obviously, they had paper losses, but they didn't react to the paper losses because they would have gone out of the bounds of the asset allocation strategy and targets. Therefore, they were able to ride the wave back up. So having an investment policy statement, sticking to it, and having a good asset allocation target in that is paramount. I think institutional investors do a really good job of performance reporting. And that really comes down to having, obviously, all your assets rolled into one place, being able to see them at the portfolio level, and then being able to see them at the individual manager and perhaps even individual security level. That then comes with a set of risk statistics, whether you can understand, is my volatility too high? Is my volatility too low? That's another feature of institutional performance reporting. Benchmarking your manager against an appropriate index is really important and is something that is uh, part of the everyday life of an institutional investor. Just think about the divergence we've seen in growth versus value over the last 10 years, but it's really been remarkable over the last, since year to date. I think year to date, the value versus growth, if you look at the Russell 3000 growth, it's up 21 to 22% while the Russell 3000 value is down 10%. So you're talking over, it is truly an amazing divergence, one we haven't seen really since the dot-com era. So if you have a growth manager, kind of a pure growth manager, and he delivers 15% returns for you year to date, you're going, well, that's great. I've got 15% in the pocket. Well, guess what? The index that you're going to benchmark that manager against was up 20%. I wouldn't be so happy about it. Obviously happy, but not as happy as I should be. And conversely, if your value manager is flat on the year, you might go, oh, what's that all about? But at least it wasn't down 10%, which is what the index did. And therefore, knowing where your managers are relative to the benchmark is, is important in the institutional world, whereas I think individuals have a tendency to focus more on absolute returns. So as we sort of think about institutional processes, and many times people are sovereign committees that make these decisions or CIOs who have to make these decisions, they really have a trustee approach in terms of the assets that they're managing. What should be thought of in those situations? 
I look at issues like cash management and lockups and how to deal with multiple constituencies back a little bit to what you're talking about in terms of making sure you have a forensic review and really understanding what you have and why it's there. Maybe take us through a little bit about your process on that front. The fact that they're trustees of an institution means they're a fiduciary. They have a higher level of prudence and understanding and action that's required vis-a-vis somebody who's just managing their own money. And that really takes on a whole new set of responsibilities. So I think about our forensic review in the following way. If a trustee is new to a situation, you, Fraser, you've just been named the trustee of XYZ Trust, and now you've got to get up to speed. Well, what are you going to do? Yes, there are assets in there. There are bonds, there are stocks, and maybe some private equity assets. And you're a competent guy. You know all about that. So you really don't think I really don't have to do much other than get some reports and look at it. But you really do have to do much more than that. You need to have a thorough understanding. And you know this, you have to have a thorough understanding of the nature of the assets that are in the portfolio. What we've created is a forensic review for people just like that, trustees coming into a new situation or new assets coming into a trust where we can go in and provide a full report on what is it that is in the portfolio, both from an individual security standpoint to the manager and what they do and what they are supposed to be doing in terms of a strategy, and then how it all ties together in terms of a portfolio. Because the new situation you may be in, that portfolio may not be structured properly relative to what you think the impact should be on the family. And you've got, as you just said, different generations. You could have a three-generation set of beneficiaries that you're working with that you have to think about income for the primary, but capital appreciation for the secondary and tertiary beneficiaries. So understanding your portfolio and having a full forensic review when you come into a situation to me is really important. And quite frankly, it's like going to a doctor. It's probably something you should have done on a regular basis, maybe not yearly, but certainly every other year to understand what it is that you've got and how it's translating and relating to your beneficiaries for whom you are uh, the trustee. A bunch of solid points there, not least of which the importance of a regular review of what's happening. And, you know, that seems like it's an obvious statement, even for people just entering the high net worth space and so on. But a lot can get lost or assumed along the way. And so I think the idea of having a, a general checkup and a process around reviewing why things are there and what function they have is important. There's one thing that we had a conversation about before, which stuck out. And to me, it made so much sense. And it's something that I have not heard mentioned elsewhere. This is in the role of an alternative allocation within a portfolio. And that the really good institutions, I think ultimately, they look at the alternative section of allocation. And at some point, it really needs to fund itself. And of course, there's a lot of detail in that and private equity and in particular, rolls off investments. And so you end up with liquidity events and many times they get rolled back into new vintages and so on. But the whole concept of an alternative portion of a portfolio, not only just sort of being there for diversification, but ultimately being self-funding for the purposes of higher returns over a longer time horizon is something in the institutional world that I really hooked on when you mentioned it. And it's something that in the individual space, I think gets missed. Is that your experience? 
Uh, it's definitely my experience. It's definitely a issue for individual investors to think about. It's the place where I think there's the biggest divergence in process between institutions and individuals is in private market investing. As you were saying, there's a way to really approach this from a process standpoint. And it's something we obviously work with with our clients. The keys to it really are that I think of the way individuals invest. They they sort of have a Baskin Robbins investment process. And and what I mean by that is there are two kinds of ice cream cone shop. One goes in, they know they're going to get Rocky Road every time and they load up the boat every time. And the other one goes in and says, I don't know what I'm going to have today. I'm going to look at the flavors. And then there's a random choice that's made and it's probably different every time. So neither of those really gets the job done with private market investing because You can't just load the boat up on venture capital time and time again, or you're really going to have probably a portfolio that's not diversified in a way that you want, nor do you want to just sort of go, I like that investment when it comes across my transom and, oh, this is a good idea over here and I'll do that one. And there's no thought process around building the kinds of exposures that you want in your portfolio of private investments. So the concept you're talking about self-funding is a really key one here. It's also not typically thought about by individuals. And in this, what we're talking about is taking vintage investing and using it as a way to fund future vintages. We all know vintage investing is important because you never know when there's going to be a, call it a hot market or a really good period of time for venture capital, private equity, those kinds of investments. And so what you want to do is you want to be layering in capital every year, every other year, so that you're in the consistently in all the vintages as we go along in time. But what it really does for you, as well as make sure you hit the hot markets, is it allows you to take a capital earned from vintage number one, let's say, and six years later, when that capital gets harvested and you've made certain amount of profits, you now can roll that back into the next vintage. And then you can roll, so let's call that vintage number six, And then you roll vintage number two into vintage number seven. And it doesn't work perfectly like that because the timing of the cash flows are never certain. But it does provide a way for you to continually build a portfolio and keep harvesting and reinvesting. And the key to it then is you are compounding your returns in the private markets. You're taking that $1 million, turning it into $2 million, then investing two and turning it into four, and then taking four and turning it into eight. And whatever number you want to use, that is, we all know, really key to financial success, at least in investing. So you've really hit on a really important point, I think, about understanding how to invest in the private markets. And the thing I really liked about your comment is it creates process around the timing of investments. And so when you have the money to invest, you're ready to invest. It's a little bit different than sort of waiting for the alternative investment opportunities to pop in front of you when your advisor has them or if they're being sold to you. And so if you've got process around timing, I think that provides a layer of discipline around entering different investments that maybe sometimes doesn't exist in the individual markets. I've seen over and over again where people are all of a sudden, there's a new product out there. It gets sold to clients and higher net worth people, as opposed to having it the other way around where the clients are investing in alternatives as part of a larger framework. And so what you're describing and having a self-funding mechanism in that space, I think 
goes to, I think, the highest level of prudence. Well, and you have to be, as you're saying, you have to be intentional about your investment program. So right now, what are we looking at in the markets? Well, we're not looking at everything. We're not willing to see everything. We're very intentional about where we want to invest because we know whether or not we've filled out our asset allocation for that particular client. We also have strategic ideas as to what we think will be a good investment going forward. So we like secondary funds, for example, secondary funds of private equity investments. We like venture capital. Those kinds of things we have to be intentional about. Otherwise, we'll get swamped with just idea after idea. And when you're intentional about it, you can then go out and find the top players and the top ideas that will fulfill that intention, that need that you have. And so being intentional about the investment process is really important. So as we start to think about where we are in the markets now, and someone's coming to you upon hearing something like this or through some other referral situation, talk a little bit about what you do in that first meeting when you're gathering information and hearing about what the client is thinking about and how to sort of translate their hopes and fears into your forensic review and ultimately your recommendation. Biggest thing we can do is listen. We can ask good questions and listen and understand where the person has come from, what kinds of issues they've run into, and what kinds of things they are looking to achieve going forward. So the first meeting really takes about three meetings, if you will, to understand all of that and to get to the right place. With a forensic review, we don't necessarily have to have that information. A forensic review is more of a consulting contract, which we typically execute over three months. And the client says to us, hey, I need to understand what I own. I just come into this situation. I'm now the trustee of XYZ or I'm the executor of my father's estate. I really don't know what he owns. Could you put it all together for me? Could you give me the information that tells me are these managers the right managers? Are these exposures the right exposures? And maybe not even decide whether or not it's right for me or not, but tell me what I have. So a forensic review typically is more transactional. But then if that leads to an ongoing relationship, that's when we get into understanding the needs of the client and creating an investment policy statement around that, and then being able to go and execute on that investment policy statement by fulfilling the exposures we've all discussed and agreed upon with various strategies from managers that we have fully vetted. That's very cool in one sense that there's different ways to sort of gather the information and different needs that different clients come to you with. So I like the way that sounds in terms of just really being able to fulfill what people need at the time they need it. Every situation is different, and that's for sure. There's nothing cookie cutter about an individual's situation, especially somebody with significant means. And so we approach it that way. We have our processes. We have our ways in which we do things. We have access to the managers that we feel are appropriate, but not everybody's going to get the same thing. They may not get the same amount of a uh, particular strategy, nor they may not get that strategy at all, depending on their situation. So It really does take a lot of individual work, if you will, but we've streamlined a lot of our processes to be able to effectively service and work with a lot of clients and bring them the best of what the institutional thought process is. 
Uh, as we start to wind down here, tell a little bit to the audience what T21 does and, and how that helps uh, uh, sort of uh, situations that require individual trustees or support for that group. Sure. So the full name of the company is T21 Trustees. That's how we refer to it. It's an idea that was spawned a couple of years ago after I heard for the umpteenth time that a colleague or really a friend of mine couldn't find a trustee that they were comfortable with. They didn't really want to go with an institutional trustee and there was no friend or family member that made sense to them. And so I began to learn and had already known several independent professional trustees over the years. And I said, the solution you sounds like you're talking about is that's what you want, an individual professional trustee. And that's someone who isn't affiliated with an institution, isn't related to you, isn't a friend to you, but someone who is a fiduciary by trade who does this as a living, either full-time or part-time. And so the business that we got into was really an executive recruiting business where we created a network of individual professional trustees across the country, but mostly in the Northeast. And that network of people that we know have different skill sets. They have different experiences. They may be proficient in real estate and another one may not be. There are all sorts of different ways to look at this. But the executive recruiting function is we are engaged by a family to find an independent professional trustee for their situation. Successor trustee is typically what we see. And in that case, we bring to them the candidates, multiple candidates for the trusteeship that makes sense based upon what they've described as what they need, what their situation is. So think of it as hiring a CEO for your company. If you were to go to a headhunter, you would say, okay, this is what I need. These are their job requirements. These are the kinds of experiences we want, et cetera, et cetera. That's exactly what we do. We find out those kinds of needs that you have as the family looking for the trustee. And then we go out and through our network, put in front of you the four or five candidates that make the most sense. And then you get to interview them. And then you get to find out if this makes sense. Is there good chemistry? Is there good experience? Is there good geography? You name it, whatever the bells and whistles are you're looking for. And then a match is made and that person becomes the trustee for your trust in a way that a CEO becomes the CEO. And if it doesn't work out, well, the CEO is not around anymore. And if it doesn't work out here, you go find a new trustee. So we don't expect that to happen, but it does happen from time to time. And one has to have the mindset that they will certainly be flexible in how they approach this problem. Excellent. What a terrific discussion here. What is the best way to keep track of you and your firm? Well, the best way is probably just to email me. We uh, don't put that much up on our website. So I would say if you're interested in learning more, it's ghubbard at algonquinadvisors.com. And if you want to use the short version of that, it's a bit of a tongue twister, but it's ghubbard at algadv.com. And if you're interested in the trustee business, it's ghubbard at t21trustees. 21 is just the numerals. Terrific. I'll put that information up on the show notes for people who are listening. And as we end here, something fun. We are both big golfers and you had a nice presentation recently, which asked this question. So I'm going to ask you, what is your dream foursome and where would you play? it? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that is a great question. One I've never really thought about, but I absolutely loved Corey Pavin's answer because I think the golfers he picked, 
really set the standard in golf. And he picked Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, Bobby Jones, and his father. That was a fivesome. That's okay. I would include Arnold Palmer because Arnold probably was the person that got me interested in golf, at least from the professional side. So I love Arnold. I think he'd be great. Tiger Woods, to me, is always fun, entertaining, and what an amazing golfer. I would include him. And the third person in my foursome is I'd like to make it a little more personal than just one of the professionals. I think that a guy named Sam Yerzetta is who I'd have. Sam taught me the game. He was the 1954 amateur champion and then the club pro where I learned. He really gave me a sense of the game and got me excited about it. So there's my dream foursome. Where would you play it? Where would I play it? The old course. Excellent. Love the old course. Great stuff. George, thanks so much for being on. Great wisdom here. I think this is going to be very useful to a lot of different families and situations that need some good attention around the investment and the fiduciary process. Well, thanks, Frazier. I really appreciate you asking me on, and it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.